Tristan Hunt is a certified transformational coach specializing in helping music industry professionals who are struggling with ADHD. Recently, having departed his post as regional manager for the Association for Electronic Music, Tristan remains a steadfast advocate for neurodiversity within electronic music culture. We are thrilled to talk about his new venture today and how ADHD and addiction, creativity, and relationships might intersect. Welcome to the show, Tristan Hunt. talking to you from today how are you i'm doing well thanks um i'm uh, in london today um yeah just back from the amsterdam dance event awesome and so we didn't get to cross paths there although we i heard murmurings of you from <laughs> from a number of people who said they were happy to see you which is like i'm always happy to see tristan <laughs> oh that's very nice to hear and, and i think yeah again we, we, we didn't get to, to catch up but um yeah saw, saw dave on the stairs with the felix um and mr dave clark um, pre, pre your pre your gig. Um, how did your gig go? It was wonderful. I was quite nervous, like going into it, just because you know there was a lot of expectations. Uh, and yeah, after two years of being postponed, and uh, and you know, it's I think that because it's such a big industry event, there was a lot to kind of show and prove. But I think it went as well as it could have gone, and it was a lot of fun. So I'm I'm was really moved by. Um, like how kind of wonderful the energy was to be back in, in the midst of like community for the first time in a couple of years. I'm really glad the gig went well. And I totally resonate with that sense of energy. It was, it felt great, didn't it? It was very positive and um, yeah, just to see so many familiar faces again in person felt really nice. And for you, is this like, um, was this the last kind of big event for you as a AFEM representative or you or your first kind of coming out as the <laughs> the ADHD <laughs> transformational coach <laughs> my last event was actually interviewing you in Paris for Paris oh, awesome so that was yeah so when we did the panel together um for women in music production at Paris Electronic Week that was the the, the last time um that I was really representing AFM in, in that way I spoke at the AFM AGM and um, so said a few words on the, the upcoming neurodiversity study, which AFM is about to, to, to launch, the, the results of. Um, so, yeah, I, this was the first time that I guess I've come out, if you like, as a um, ADHD music industry coach and sort of really presented myself to, to the industry in that way. That's really exciting. And how do you feel like it went? Or how was the experience different from kind of being part of a larger organization? That's a great question. I think because it, it, that really struck me, having been a part of AFM, for the last four, four and a bit years, and always gone out there as part of another organisation, it was quite different being there as me, um, where you're sort of uh, not attached to having to be anywhere or do anything at any particular time, but just sort of free-flowing and going around and seeing people and connecting. Um, 
in a much less structured way, you know, without having lots of scheduled meetings, um, which I really enjoyed. So, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the experience and, and the feedback I had was, was really positive. Well, I'm really happy to hear that. Congratulations on the first kind of like event as as such, because I do think it's like it's a big need in our industry. Um, because as obviously like kind of having been part of a, a study on, on neurodiversity and dance music, like <laughs> there's a lot of us, I think, who suffer from that or struggle with that, who can possibly like change it into a superpower if we're not already, if we have the tools to, to do so. Definitely. And, and thank you for the reflections. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And that, that sense that we have that so many of the people within our industry do have some sort of neurodiverse condition, um, you know, it's being borne out by the research that is being done at the moment. Um, so from, I guess, a more sort of qualitative, quantitative um, space, but then also just when people found out, um, you know, what I was doing, there was real interest in that because they were either self-associating, a lot, a lot of people were self-associating, or they knew somebody that they felt had some sort of neurodiverse condition. So I think you're absolutely right um, that our industry is, is powered by people that have neurodiverse conditions. It's about how we can then support those people so they can really thrive um, and, and make the most of, of, the, of those superpowers they have. That's awesome. That's, uh, that's so exciting. And we're going to get into that a little bit more later. Um, but kind of on the podcast, we like to ask people what their preferred pronouns are and then also kind of what their experiences of gender today, because we felt like pronouns as a question felt a little bit performative. And so I'm curious as to like, what are your pronouns? And, and also, what is your experience of gender today? Like, how, how does it feel in your skin today in relation to that? Sure. So uh, he, him, uh, in terms of my pronouns, uh, I think it's been a for me as, as, a, as a white, straight male um, who has worked across the scene for over 20 years. And, I, you know, one of the clubs I started doing some work with back in the day in Ibiza around about 2000 was, was a club called Trade, um, which many people will know of sort of a you know, legendary house, house nights um, for the gay community um, <clears throat> at Turn Mills in London. I um, mean, you know, so I've been, I've been across that side of the scene, but I'm still a, a white straight guy who's learning about all of the the nuance that, that's coming that's, that people are being able to, to share and explore, and that's the bit that feels so important because it feels a bit like the neurodiversity conversation that we're having. That, that we're, we're moving to a place where there's a much greater degree of nuance about personal expression you know, and, and how we can support one another. You know, understanding each other better connect and then connecting with each other better because we have that better understanding we can be more synergistic when we know how other people work um you know wh whether it's their sexuality or their neurodiversity or the combination of the two or wh whatever <laughs> else it might be um that it feels like we're moving into like a really healthy space where the industry as a whole is, is supporting the conversation that sits around that yeah, for sure. And I mean, also, I think that like part of the reason that we pose that question is because for a lot of people who have maybe entered like a trans or non-binary space or who have been in the queer community for a long time, it feels like that might be kind of a, something that they're aware of, like a, a, a journey with gender and sexuality where a lot of us, like, especially I think from your or my generation have never been kind of invited to question that if it was, if there was an assumption, it was like, like there there was not as you say like a lot of nuance kind of offered or like the kind of self-examination especially for straight white dudes <laughs> was not necessarily there you know it's like if if you're pres presumptively at the top of a food chain in terms of patriarchy <laughs> then like the i think 
the ability to even like question that or to like wonder like, wow, like what is, what is that like today? Like, how do I relate to that part of myself? Um, it can be, it can be super interesting just cause I don't think it's necessarily like been on offer to examine that, uh, until very recently. So thank you for your answer. And, um, as you know, we were talking about like your kind of pivot from specifically like music industry as part of an organization to now, uh, you know, a coaching career. Like, can you tell us a little bit about what led you there? Uh, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I got diagnosed with ADHD um, a few years back um, when I was 40. So late, late stage diagnosis. And how did you like, did you, were you going in specifically to get that diagnosis? Like, cause you were like, I'm struggling in these ways and I'm wondering if it's something that, that might have to do with like neurodiversity or were you, was it kind of, how did that even go down the, the getting diagnosed? That's a great question. I mean, I, I, I'd done over 1,100 hours of psychotherapy by this stage. So like 10, 10 years <laughs> now. So I'm like, okay, I know myself um, I, I, and I'm far from a perfect person. But, you know, if I act out in a certain way, I know where that's coming from and, and, and all of those things that psychotherapy teaches you. But there were still some bits that were sticking. And I'm like, there's just stuff that's not working here. And I, I don't know why. Mm. Um, and back in 2018, I'd said to my therapist, I thought I might have ADHD. And, you know, okay, so that might, that might be a thing, but I thought that I could get by without sort of like really getting diagnosed for it because I had the, the tools to, to, to deal with it. But then I think like a lot of people in the pandemic where our resources, our, our community was taken away from us. So those yeah. coping mechanisms that we had access to just suddenly disappeared. But the ability to, to, co to cope and to do work and the regular things we were doing that became very challenging. So that was the trigger point for me to go and get um, a, a private diagnosis. In the end, I was, I'm, so I'm here in the UK and in London, and I was on an NHS waiting list. So a government, you know, um, a supported health health scheme where it's it's free, but the waiting list is so long. This was yeah. a year. Now it's, I believe, it's three years. I'm hearing from clients that they're on three year waiting lists to wow. see somebody. Um, so I chose to melt my credit cards. Um, because it's not cheap. It co I think I spent about twelve hundred pounds. Wow! Like thirteen, fourteen hundred euros. To, to Just for the diagnosis. For the diagnosis and also for the medication. So that, cool. that that's why I was going there because that was the bit that wasn't working. I was like, well, I can't like somebody that can't see clearly. I can't, you know, I can't think clearly. I can't think calmly, and I don't know why. Um, yeah. And the medication has been hugely helpful for for addressing that. Awesome. So, okay. So you got diagnosed, uh, in, uh, when you were 40 and from that, what kind of, how did that unfold from there? Like, cause diagnosed, being diagnosed and getting some tools, like what kind of led you to be like, okay, I need to help people. <laughs> I think looking around when I was on this journey myself at that particular point, there was no resources there. There, there was nobody offering ADHD coaching for somebody that works in the music industry. There were ADHD coaches out there, sure, but people with understanding about our industry and its complexities and how it works, just a complete absence. There's one one person I sort of came across in the States, um, but even so, wasn't really quite, quite a fit. So as I went through the journey and became more versed in ADHD and really understood the part it's played in my life, that became more important to me to try and help other people. I've, I've sort of led, I've been um, uh, championing mental health for the Association for Electronic Music for the last five or six years, which we um, very much appreciate. 
Well, thank you, and appreciate that you know you've, you've obviously stepped into to several of the, the panels that we've, we've done before, um, and to everyone else that's contributed to that <clears throat> conversation. That's helped to advance that hugely. So we're now, <clears throat> excuse me, we're now at a point with mental health where it's just it's just discussed at every conference. You go to a music industry conference; it's a standard part of, of the conference schedule. And I think we're a little bit at that place with neurodiversity, maybe like where mental health was seven or eight years ago. It's just being introduced. It's getting the attention it deserves. But to your question about sort of what you know made me want to, to, to engage with it was that there's still a limited amount of information out there and a limited number of places where you can get that information. So I wanted to skill myself up. I did retraining uh, um, around coaching and, and did some specialist training in America where they've got really good um, a, a training for people that want to be an ADHD coach. The States is actually quite far ahead there. Uh, and then wrap that up with the... 20 years of music industry experience I've got so really understanding the industry um, plus the mental health you know know-how I'm not clinical I'm not a doctor um, but bringing those three things together means that the people that I work with from across the music industry don't need to explain themselves oh I'm an artist oh I'm an A&R or label exec or whatever I already understand those roles we don't need to sort of they don't need to explain those in detail we can just focus on how their ADHD shows up within their personal and professional life. That's awesome. And I mean, it, it sounds like almost like a, a spiritual thing, like kind of being called into this new lane of just like, it doesn't really matter what you want to be doing. Like, this is how you're uniquely qualified and, and need to be of service, essentially. Was there any of that involved for you? The, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a really, it's a really neat observation because I hadn't really thought about it in those terms. It, in terms of a life purpose, that feels very strong. That this, this very much feels like it's a, it's a culmination of all of these different things I've done. Um, I practice for passion. I've gone on two-week silent retreats, and um, I'm very into my meditation. And that side of things, I find it incredibly um, useful and interesting for people with ADHD. Meditation is incredibly powerful at calming the mind and focusing. It's a great tool to use anyway. Um, I guess the spiritual component is finding something that is in harmony with who I am as a person and the benefit that I can bring to other people. So I'm now in this wonderful place, Louise, where I have these exchanges with people one-on-one, -on -one, having worked for an international trade body, you know, AFEM, 270 members across 27 countries and all of the sort of the great and the good from the music industry. Working at scale like that, incredibly exciting, very interesting, but it's working with large groups of people, whereas mm -hmm. this is one-on-one. -on -one. And to be able to help people and have that direct connection with people, I guess, yeah, that, that, that there's, there's, there's definitely a spiritual component to that. And it, it, it feels really good. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. Like, as you say that, I feel quite moved because I see kind of like, I don't know, that it, it's always exciting when people kind of find like their calling and, mm -hmm. and are able to like execute, you know, in a meaningful way. So congratulations. <laughs> and, you know, like you touched briefly on mental health and like, I know that I'm, really passionate about kind of advocating for that within our industry. Cause especially kind of during the pandemic, we saw it. And I mean, I guess prior to obviously with like people burning out and there's being like a, a kind of scary amount of addiction and suicide, um, in, in recent years in electronic music. Um, but like, it seems that, you know, while neurodiversity is often kind of looped in with mental health, it's not necessarily the same thing. Um, can you talk a little bit about like what ADHD and neurodiversity, like how they intersect with mental health or addiction? 
Sure. So it, it's it's a great point that they often will get sort of I guess lumped together, but that uh, mental health challenges that people might experience can arise from components of their neurodiversity. So, for example, I was literally on a client call before this talking about this 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 element where people who have ADHD <clears throat> often feel as though they've also got anxiety or depression. Mm. Excuse me. Um, these are byproducts of. These are often byproducts, and again, I'm, I'm not clinical. I'm not a doctor, so they need to be assessed in, in their own right by, by clinicians. But what we often find is that people that have ADHD are spending an awful lot of time in a, a fight or flight state. Right, mm. the ADHD brain works in one of two different states: high interest and really interested in this thing. I can do it all day long. It's easy for me. I love it. Or urgency oh shit, I need to go and get that plane because if I miss my flight, I won't get the gig and then I don't get paid. <clears throat> Suddenly you're packing all your bags and flying out the door. So, But that, that state of urgency that we can apply to invoices, um, getting out of the house, getting stuff together, it can be quite everyday stuff. People with ADHD, they're often using that state of urgency, this fight or flight state. This is meant for like saber-toothed tigers, right? You know, this is not <laughs> meant for emails and invoices. But if you're constantly in that place, it's incredibly exhausting for the mind and body. You know, this is a really, really draining process. And that can leave people um, feeling really low. It can leave them feeling depressed. It can leave them feeling incredibly anxious. So that, that can be a, a, a byproduct. Those, those the mental health um, uh, conditions like that can show up as a result of um, the ADHD condition. D- d- does that answer the question? That totally answers the question, like how they're linked. I mean, was that true for you? Did you find that like the urgency and like the anxiety were the pieces that weren't kind of budging no matter how much therapy you were doing? Uh, yeah. So I started therapy to treat my anxiety. <laughs> um, so uh, and it was incredibly useful. I'm really glad that I did it. I learned a huge amount uh, and I'm, I'm, it's one of the best things I've ever done. And I'm a huge advocate of therapy as a result of it. Um, but I now know that an awful lot of that anxiety was born from my ADHD for, for the reasons that I've just described. And like as a condition, I mean, I think that we're all like, I mean, at least in America where we love prescribing ADHD medication to hyperactive children. Um, but like it, you know, there's been claims that it's been overprescribed or that like, of course, kids who don't get to run around are going to kind of be a little hyperactive. Like what's kind of the difference between this like kind of broad, like cultural view of like someone being like, oh yeah, I'm ADD, I'm the ADHD, I can't sit down and pay attention with, with like a clinical diagnosis and the symptomology that goes along with that. It's, it's, it's a very, it's a very powerful question because it addresses, it speaks to this idea of people often saying that they've got ADHD, oh, I must have ADHD as well because there's elements of their life um, that show up a bit like ADHD symptoms. And we see a lot of this on sort of TikTok and social media and things that there's quite, again, quite a lot of misinformation that's that's out there. This is why clinical diagnosis is so important. <clears throat> For people that have ADHD, especially, like, these challenges around time management, you know, ADHD is affects the executive functioning, executive function of, of, of the brain, the ability to plan um, understand time um, to organize yourself um, that this is quite a profound experience you know it's, it's, it's classified in the UK as a disability although I don't look at it mm. as such because of the impact that it can have on people's lives so when it comes to medication 
getting a clinical diagnosis for a lot of people can be transformative because suddenly they have access to medicine um, which can address so many of those challenges. It can suddenly enable them to think more clearly, to have greater focus and to be able to finish those things that they're trying to do. <clears throat> it doesn't take away their creativity. In fact, it can harness their creativity because rather than their creativity going in a million different directions all at once and then feeling exhausted at the end of it, having never actually got anything done that day, um, they're able to see tasks through to the end. Maybe that's m mixing down a track. You know, it's actually start starting that track, coming back to it, developing it, completing it and releasing it rather than having, you know, 500 unfinished tracks on the hard drive. Um, so when it comes to children, the paediatric prescribing of ADHD medication, um, again, this is not my speciality, and I'm not a doctor, but the, from the experts that I've read, the sort of the peer-reviewed studies and the people who are very respected in this field, internationally recognised authors and, and scientists, there's a consensus view that if ADHD medication is prescribed correctly um, to, to children, it can have a profound impact on their ability to learn and develop. And you see that through to the teenage years into adulthood. <clears throat> I used to heavily self-medicate. So I got away with it because I'm working in the music industry. Um, you know, we're, you know, if you're, if you're having a, if you're having a drink at 11 o'clock or sniffing a line of Coke in the accounting office, um, <laughs> it's not that crazy. <laughs> you know, it, it's the, 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 those things are going to be noticed pretty quickly. Whereas, you can you can get away with that sort of behaviour with the self medicating <clears throat> behaviour that many people with ADHD have. <clears throat> excuse me, um, because of that environment, and the reason that I self medicated was because I didn't have the internal tools to begin with to, to deal with this correctly, but that also the symptoms of ADHD for me at different times were so profound that the only way that I could mitigate them was to self medicate. Yeah, totally. If you're on ADHD medication, you don't need that need to do that. Often, for many people, um, diminishes to a point where it's no longer it's no longer a, a thing. And ADHD medication has the highest efficacy of any mental health medication in the world. So, 75 to 85 percent of people that take ADHD medication find a significant benefit from it. So, this is it's an incredibly powerful, well-researched medication that, when it's applied correctly. Um, can have a have a transformative effect on on people's lives, and it can it can prevent. This is the irony of it. <laughs> Part of my resistance to taking the medication in the first place was like, I've been sober for a year and a half. Um, you know, I've reset myself, and I do drink, and, and you know, um, I, I occasionally drink. Um, but like, it's it's elective and it's occasional. It's yeah. not, it's not a necessity, you know, and it's thought about beforehand. ADHD medication can prevent people from finding themselves in a place where they have become addicted to one of the substances they've been they've been self-medicating with so it's actually um it's, it's ironic that you're giving a stimulant medication potentially to stop people from getting addicted to stimulants like <laughs> i mean that's a super interesting point though and i really like i hear you because again like you know the podcast is called sober sex <laughs> so we talk a lot about recovery and and sobriety and i think like for me personally, as somebody who abused uh, Ritalin, Adderall, Adderall, um, in the past, at, when I was a stimulant addict, not for ADHD, which apparently I do not have. <laughs> um, 
Um, that although I really tried to convince people in rehab that I had it, so they prescribed me stimulants. Um, they were like, "No, you're fine. You can totally focus." I'm like, ah. um, but for instance, like I would feel as a as taking somebody through the twelve steps, I would personally feel uncomfortable taking somebody who was on medications that I had not like was unable to form a healthy relationship with, like like ADHD medication, like basically any kind of stimulant, opiate, benzodiazepine. Um, because I have no concept of how I might use those safely in sobriety. Therefore, I don't have the ability to advise somebody else. Right. So, you know, and I do think that they're like, I, I have peers in, in recovery who have neurodiversity and take medications as prescribed and can kind of safely sponsor people through that experience along, alongside, of course, their, you know, doctor, psychologist, psychiatrist, um, but I do wonder, because I do think it can be such a fine line, uh, if you are trying to really maintain abstinence, like what are some tools? I know that like you mentioned meditation, but like, what are some tools outside of medication that you utilize both for yourself and, you know, kind of recommend for your clients who are, who are getting into the, the coaching process? Definitely. And there's a, there's a, there's a lot out there. I'll mention some key ones just to sort of top and tell that, that last point. Um, that's absolutely something that you'd need to do with your doctor. So if you were, if you <clears throat> had had addiction um, to stimulants of any sorts, you would need to speak to your um, uh, clinical um, you know, professional about going through that process. The, the biggest difficulty that people have with ADHD medication, they go, this isn't working, and then they go and check in with their doctor. It turns out they haven't been taking it because they've forgotten. I, I didn't <laughs> Right. So I I did the same. I did the same thing. um, You know, there was there was a period in in my life many years ago where, um, you know, Coke was a big part of my life. You know, and I went to Australia and to work for a year and then realized just actually how big a part of my life it had been that it was it was problematic. So I've had a you know, I've had my own in the past um, uncomfortable relationship with with stimulants. But that that ADHD medication is is so so not addictive if you like if you've got ADHD <clears throat> that you will forget to take it um, uh, because that that desire isn't there. You don't wake up thinking where are my ADHD meds. You get to twelve o'clock and you think shit, I haven't taken my meds. So yeah, just to, just to uh, um, I hope that's a useful amendment. To, 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 I, I do definitely think so, and I appreciate the constant kind of circling back, like with doctor's orders, I am not a doctor. Like we, I really appreciate that. And I mean, I think, cause again, like, especially within 12 step recovery, there's like so many fake doctors, <laughs> um, that it's like laughable, but I, I have, I have a friend who, you know, they're in, in recovery and they, they said that like ADHD medication was the only drug they didn't like because it made them feel normal, which they did not appreciate, you know? And I, so to kind of speak to your point. <laughs> Interesting. I mean, it, that absolutely speaks to the point. Um, so, and that's, and that's kind of encouraging to to hear that so to your question about sort of what people can do meditation brilliant way first thing in the day to settle the mind we know from um uh, neuroscience um that uh, neuroplasticity that the brain's ability to to change and evolve and respond to external and internal stimulus um is enhanced by uh meditation so you're basically making better neural connections to parts of your brain um that are going to make you feel calmer make you feel more focused and if you do that on a daily basis you build up those mental muscles so and it can be practiced anywhere you can take it on tour with you you can do it in a hotel you can do it on a plane you can do it when you're at the dentist you know it's like it's something that gives you a really nice compound effect it's free to do Um, although there's some great apps out there like calm and headspace which guided meditation is often really helpful 
especially if you've got ADHD. Um, I came back, I've done like 10 days of Vipassana, like over 100 hours, 10 hours of meditation a day. I thought I'm some sort of meditation expert at this point. Uh, and yeah, a week or two later, I was back on Headspace because I was like, I need the guidance because <laughs> my mind's going off in, in different directions. So, so meditation is incredibly powerful. Exercise is another one. So recommend to all of my clients do exercise daily. So do as much exercise as, as you can safely. Um, you know, uh, that, that uh, gets you what we know is like zone two cardio for a lot of people where you just elevated the heart rate and you do that for sort of, you know, 45 minutes to, to an hour every day. That's going to increase dopamine levels, um, serotonin, a whole range of um, positive neurotransmitters, which again, help to make us feel calmer, help us to make us feel more settled and, and, and to give, give us more focus. And again, you can do that by, by, by running or just going for long, long walks. So there's a load, load of free ways that you can do that without having to, to spend money. So both meditation and, and the exercise um, can, can be done for free. Um, uh, and then there's diets, <clears throat> also really important, finding a diet that works well for you. Um, uh, it's sort of like this, uh, this uh, anathema is the wrong word, but um, like don't give, don't give uh, kids sugar. Don't give people that have got ADHD sugar because it's going to, um, you know, it's, it's, it's going to sort of like um, make their ADHD worse. What it does for a moment, it makes it better. So that sugar increases the amount of dopamine, like caffeine. Mm. Will make, so it'll make, actually make that person feel better for a period. But then there's a crash afterwards. Yeah. And it's the crash that's the problematic bit. So we really want to avoid sugar as much as possible. And you, you do, you've you referred a couple of times to dopamine. Is that kind of part of the chemical-like process that, that ADHD is involved with? That's right. So ADHD is, is, is a neurobiological condition. Um, which um, in sort of simplest terms um, means that <clears throat> there is a, a lack of availability of um, the neurotransmitter, neuromodulator dopamine um, for the brain. And dopamine is responsible for a whole range of different things. We often associate it to, to being associated to pleasure, but it's highly linked to motivation. So this yeah. ability to go and get stuff done, dopamine is absolutely crucial for that. For our ability to plan and execute, we, we need it to focus to get those things achieved. People that have ADHD, they don't have, they have insufficient access to the dopamine required to get those daily tasks done. Does, it, does that make sense? That totally makes sense. That's really interesting. I mean, again, also not a doctor, but this uh, it's re- recently been doing a lot of like reading and, and listening to how dopamine really the effect or the relationship it has with addiction. And it sounds like almost an inverse, <laughs> an inverse effect, right? That like the, the addict brain has like such a incredibly powerful response to dopamine that we are willing to literally get anything done in order to kind of scratch that itch, you know? And, and it seems like this is like a, yeah, it's, it's the opposite almost. It is. It's re- that's a really good point though. Cause I think that there is, the, there are some strong parallels um, with the ADHD brain and the, the addict's brain. Uh, in that they both don't care where they get the dopamine from. They just want that hit and, yeah. they, want, they, and they want more of it. So you might have somebody with ADHD. They've had a great day. It's all gone really well. Think, you know, think that they're actually feeling quite good um, in terms of how the day's gone, nothing to complain about. But then they'll pick up their phone and they'll dive onto Instagram and have an Instagram binge and that dopamine will be elevated within them. And they'll come off Instagram um, or whatever social media that they might be using, if that's their thing, 
and they'll crash and they'll feel incredibly low and they'll feel maybe that sense of anxiety there's you know there's a there's a greater mm-hmm. absence of dopamine available to them and they'll just pick their phone up reflexively just put their phone down after an hour's use they're picking it up straight away to go back on there to boost back up those dopamine levels because that because um it's it's painful essentially for, for, for the brain um but the the adhd brain will ruminate so it will often go to thinking very dark thoughts um or um to bad experiences um very easily because often people with adhd they've had a lifetime of being told they're stupid or they're not mm. smart enough or you know, it's debilitating and it's it's heartbreaking no matter how many times you hear it just how hard people have been to themselves and how hard people have been on them um because of their, their condition and that then means if you if you think about sort of like rutted tracks down a country road, you know, sort of like if you have a, a car, it's going to sit very neatly on those those rutted tracks yeah. and just drift, drift down there. The, the brain will often get onto those tracks and go to quite dark places. That's quite dopaminergic, although it's like not necessarily a happy place. It's, it's stimulating. It's creating stim- mm-hmm. stimulation. The brain is looking for, for that stimulation in the same way that it can look um, to be stimulated by being so excited about the gig that you're going to go and play you know, in a week or two's time uh, and that you can really sort of hype yourself up in that way. So people with ADHD can you know, self-stimulate um, by thinking certain things and, and the ADHD brain doesn't care where it's getting that dopamine from. So I guess a little bit like, and tell me if this is right for you, whether this, you, you think this, this is, is, is right, but the, it, where, where that hit comes from doesn't really matter just so long as the brain gets it. Yeah, that's, I mean, like, I think that's, we, we talked yesterday at another interview where we discussed this idea of like the addict brain being whack-a-mole <laughs> because it's like, if it's not getting it for, even once you stop drinking or using, like suddenly it's like codependent relationships or sex and suddenly it's like food or not food or shopping, you know, it's just like literally anything. Right. And so to kind of like, I mean, for the addict, it's this this prescription of like a spiritual solution, right? The thing that like, that quote unquote fills a God sized hole, you know, mm. the thing that will fill the abyss <laughs> that is created by this like dopamine urgency at all times, you know, and I think that like evolutionarily, it's also helpful to contextualize this idea of like, oh, like this is your survival mechanism on overdrive, you know, like this is what kind of kept you like getting the calories essentially that, re- that allowed our species to, to, you know, propagate, even though the cost is so high, uh, to, to every other element of your life. Um, so yeah, that idea of, of like, it doesn't matter where it's coming from as long as I'm can like, I, I mean, I guess for the addict, it's like, as long as I don't have to like be be here or feel this right now, I'm fine. (laughs) Like we're good. And that, that, that maybe is one of the, the, the differences is that so ADHD makes can often make people far more predisposed to addiction that's kind mm-hmm. of like the, the, the stuff that sits around that obviously there's a lot that we could discuss around that but but that's the key point is that adhd often makes people far more pre- predisposed to being addicted to sex food drink drugs shopping whatever instagram you know social gambling yeah. what's that Gambling, gambling, exactly, exactly. It really, it really doesn't matter, just so long as it can, it can get get, get that dopamine. But um, I, get, I guess so. That's a bit of, sort of a tangent about sort of you know the, the correlation between addiction and and also ADHD. So we sort of like said meditation, 
exercise and diet, there's three great things that people can do that if you've got ADHD, that they're worth, um, they're really worth looking at. And then look, the coaching work that I do is, is around structure. So how can you impose a routine on your day that you've chosen and works well for you, that's going to give you that structure to feel safe and secure, reduce the unknowns, re- really the ADHD brain doesn't like the un, doesn't like unknowns, right? And spends a lot of time trying to scenario plan, work stuff out. That's exhausting. How do how do we reduce that down? How do we have have a, have a structure to the day that um, will enable you to get done what you need to do? That's I'm, and it's funny because even in our like interactions leading up to this uh, conversation, I realized like. <laughs> I think, sadly, and sorry on our part, but you asked a couple times for a link, like an invitation with a link, right, to kind of delegate the responsibility of like, you don't have to remember to put it in your calendar and you don't have to like get the link. Like the link will be delivered to your calendar when you need it. So this kind of idea of like what structures can we put in place to um, kind of, yeah, like delegate the remembering and the kind of placeholding, right? Like how can I make my own life easier by asking for what I need? I think is a really big tool both for like, you know, like literally everybody, but especially people who might have trouble staying focused long enough to like remember to do the thing, to put the thing in the thing, to save the, you know, like the multi-step process of like self-calendar reminding. 100%. And and the more that you can outsource and outboard those things, um, the better because then, it's less for, for, for the for the mind to be occupied by. And and do you feel, I mean, like you mentioned um, social media, right? And I know that I'm definitely, like most of the people I interact with, I think on a daily basis are probably low-key addicted to social media because, by design, right? It's like we hear a lot about like the attention economy right now um, and, you know, the, the kind of toxicity of that within like... <laughs> something that's scientifically engineered to hoard your attention, you know? Um, And do you feel like, I I feel like kind of on a global scale, do you feel like social media has affected our ability to pay attention? So there's, there's been quite a lot of research that's been done into this. And as I understand it, at a a top line, yes, it's, it is impactful because what you often find is that people are also task switching. So they're moving between maybe like checking social media whilst being on their laptop, whilst listening to something. Whilst um, watching something on a third screen. Whilst watching something on a third, third screen while somebody's talking to them. You know, all of, all of those sorts of things. And so you're, divi- you're, you're dividing your attention between all of these different places. That's weakening um, your ability to focus on a single thing. Attend to one task for an extended period which is why meditation is so powerful. You're just coming back to the breath um, again and again, just coming back to that breath. Um, um, the, that focus onto a single thing starts to build up more robust internal connections in the brain. But obviously if we're, as you're saying there, you know, like diverting it to all of these different things, using social media in that way, multiple screens open, then yes, I mean, it's, it's absolutely having a, a, a weakening effect on, on our ability to, to attend. And do you feel like people who are suffering from neurodiversity or ADHD are kind of more, more potently affected by that? They're, they're all, they're coming, they're coming from a, they're coming from a place where already their ability to focus is challenged. So it can <laughs> make it 10 times harder. <laughs> Absolutely, it can it can absolutely it can absolutely catalyze it. And again, 
they're more predisposed to task switching, to moving around to lots of different things, because it's creating dopamine. It's making, it's making them feel good. So they naturally want to do those things. So pulling our focus and attention into doing one single task, when you've got ADHD, that, that can be extremely challenging. I hear that. Um, and, and again, like I appreciate the idea of like task switching, like, um, it's funny. I listened to a podcast. It's for, for those who might have been following the show, it's, uh, you made it weird or we made it weird. And the host, one of the hosts, we had the co-host Valerie Cheney on, who's awesome. Go back a couple seasons for that episode. But one of the hosts had been recently diagnosed with ADHD <laughs> and he's like, he, he's talking kind of openly about his journey with it. And this idea of like not being it, like to have to kind of, um, switch modes more than, and not necessarily tasks, but like right now I'm being social and right now I'm like sitting quietly and focusing on work. Like to have to do that more than a couple times in a day, literally impossible, ruins the entire thing, takes too many mental resources, <laughs> makes him pissy. Like, do you find that that's kind of one of the symptoms of it? Like not being able to like switch, uh, modes of, of operation? Absolutely. And it, it's known as transitioning. So being able to transition from uh, one activity to another, or one space, place, geographic location to another, that is often very challenging for people with ADHD. It's using up a lot of resource to, to move between those spaces. And they can often find themselves comparing themselves to colleagues who they've come off uh, you know, doing a podcast interview and they dive onto a Zoom call and then they come back to their desk and they do like an hour's worth of really solid project work. Or you know, And for somebody with ADHD, this is mind-blowing. It's like, how are people managing to do this? You know, and We see it at conferences like ADE. You know, I'm sure that you're familiar with with colleagues of ours who they've just they've just flown in from New York and they're sat there and they've got their laptop out and, and they're you know doing something highly productive and then they'll have a phone call and that's really you know product and it's a very different experience when you've got ADHD. The, the, the moving between those different tasks is incredibly challenging and filtering out all of the noise, all of the the background noise that's going on, the internal noise just bring your focus to attention is is so so tough even the name adhd is sort of a, a bit of a misnomer so attention deficit hyperactivity disorder so it's got two it's got two pejorative words in it for a start okay? <laughs> oh. <laughs> deficit disorder or attention hyperactivity <laughs> deficit in there right straight away it's you know it's got negative connotations attention deficit hyperactivity disorder okay so so there's some real negative reinforcement that, that's going in just in, in the name alone but just parking that to one side adhd isn't about a, a lack of attention that's not that's not the challenge with adhd it's not a lack of attention it's about being able to bring that attention to focus there's too much attention you've got the adhd mm -hmm. brain you've got attention for absolutely everything everything's interesting to you it's bringing that attention to, to a single point of focus and, and that's that's one of the, the the biggest challenges that people often face oh no it's funny like even talking to you i get like the sense of it um like it's weird like somatically <laughs> it feels like that like uh and i think about this a lot that kind of like science fair like expanding contract ball if you could see my hands they're kind of oscillating out and in and like i know that um i tend to ha i have it challenges like i get stuck either out in kind of anxiety and distraction or in in kind of a low depressive state and i'm wondering if that's kind of like multiply that in a kind of exponential way when you're talking about like having to like 
task switch, transition from places or, or ideas, <laughs> like literally every, there's so many snags, you know, I, I, I can sense when I'm speaking to you that like can make everything just more difficult. Definitely. And, and you're, and just, um, just so I, I'm correct on this, you don't have ADHD. No, I mean, I would, uh, I would, I definitely have been diagnosed with hypomania and depression, thrillingly, <laughs> and identify as a, a recovering drug addict. But no, I even like in in preparation for our talk, I took uh, like a online test for ADHD, and they were like, "No, you're fine." <laughs> they were like, "Out of you know the on a scale of like one to fourteen, you're like a six. So, so to hear, but to hear you talking that way, then that's so helpful for people. Because that's you. That's relating to part of the ADHD experience, and I think that's what a lot of people that have ADHD um, maybe feel is just that people don't understand. <clears throat> and if you can see my 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 fingers, I'm making air quotes of neurotypical. That you know, neuro, we now think that the word neurotypical, which describes people that you know don't. Have <laughs> it's like an absurd name. <laughs> ADHD, Tourette's, dyslexia, dyscalculia. Um, oh, it's dyscalculia. Uh, inability to process numbers in a in a in a neurotypical way um, so one would say it's like kind of number dyslexic is that accurate exactly Ish? Ex- ex- okay <laughs> cool well, I, I have i have the condition and you just saw the difficulty with which i had to describe it there so that that is also a thing i've got dyslexia and dyscalculia alongside my ADHD, and, and that that ability to express yourself even about topics that you know so well can be incredibly challenging and you know that sense of frustration that people often feel um there's a guy called ned halliwell dr dr edward halliwell um but calls himself ned it's like this guy's a harvard professor right and he's a harvard level educated guy he's one of the foremost minds on adhd wrote a book called adhd 2.0 anyone's listening to um this podcast that wants to get a great resource on adhd adhd 2.0 is 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 one of the best current guides out there and very clearly written and very accessible but but so this amazing mind talks about how he's broken down in tears um you know doing a presentation he can't get together in his mind's eye what he wants to say and what he wants to express himself Mm. so emotionally dysregulated because of a number of different factors adhd has an effect on your emotions in, in in a huge huge way and despite all of the success, this guy's like, you know, he's like resident on Oprah Winfrey and, you know, he's on all, all of the talk shows really well known. But despite all of the life success, this sense of failure and frustration that can often come up um, for people that have ADHD is, is very common. And part of that is through not being um, uh, heard or, or seen, you know, because it would be known as like an invisible disability. It's, not, it's mm-hmm. not a visible one. So when I hear you saying what you said there, and I kind of knew from earlier on in our chat that, you know, you said, hey, I sort of tried Adderall before and it, you know, didn't, didn't do anything for me. <laughs> you know, didn't suddenly feel more focused that, that, that you maybe didn't have ADHD. But that clarifying that point, when you hear that sort of understanding, that means a lot to people because it's not, no. it's, it's often something that they, they don't know. Well, no, and I appreciate you saying that. And I do think that like, you know, in, in early recovery, often people struggle with something called post-acute withdrawal syndrome, where I think there's a lot of sim- symptoms that are quite similar to ADHD. Like I recall feeling like all of, like I'm 
quite a verbal communicator. And I feel like all the words that I needed to use were kind of behind a glass wall, like behind a two-way mirror that I couldn't access. And that being very shocking and frustrating. And then we had a guest named uh, Jessica Leahy on, um, and she wrote a book called The Addiction Inoculation. And she talks about kind of the effects of drugs and alcohol as, as somebody who's both an adult child of alcoholics and in recovery herself, she was talking about the effects of drugs and alcohol on um, adolescent minds, like what the the effects on the brain are track, tra- trackably, traceably. And uh, it, <laughs> like, it was, it was shocking because it kind of, my, I, I, for the first time, I think much like your epiphany with um, like, these things are just not like I, what you were talking about in therapy, like kind of not being able to, grapple with certain things, no matter what, how deep the work you were doing or is, or what you were, you know, trying. I, I finally had that, a similar epiphany when it came to kind of my emotional regulation, like being a drug addict at quite a young age. Um, I think, like, I do think it kind of broke parts of my emotional regulation system that I've either had to work really hard to, to get back or will just never come back. Like that I just have to kind of like be aware of that and, and set up, in my life and in my kind of experience, things that will help me with that stuff. Right. Because, so I do think that like, at least I'll I'll speak for all addicts, but at least in the addiction community or the, the recovery community rather that like there is a, there's a very similar relationship with kind of feeling like misunderstood or feeling like it can be really difficult to articulate like, the specific struggle, because as you say, it can, it can be an invisible thing. And so, you know, I think it has a lot of parallels to like ND stuff. Um, and similarly, like, I, I appreciate you talking about how it's, it's like, it is also an emotional issue, you know, like the, I'm sure the level of like frustration and yeah, like the, especially like the outside messaging that one is getting from a young age, if one is struggling with this kind of stuff, I was wondering, um, like how, either in your experience or in your observation, uh, like ADHD has affected like sex and relationships for you. Cause again, <laughs> the, the sex part of sober sex. It's in the title. Um, being, being present, uh, can often be a huge challenge. And if you're with somebody being physical with that person and being pre- present with them, um, can be, um, challenging sometimes you know and and that can lead to a whole range of um different feelings um sometimes which are, they're quite they can be quite negative you know you, maybe you want to be with somebody and you want to feel connected with them but you don't and maybe at that moment can't feel connected because your um your focus and attention even during sex you know it can be pulled in so many other different directions that that can certainly you know from the person experience, um, the other person might not necessarily be aware of it, but but it, it, that that can be quite unsettling to say the least. And it can, from my own experience, you know, it's definitely had an impact on the relationships that I've had, um, where um, at times there hasn't been that connection because I've been, um, you know, uh, sort of my focus has been so so sort of all over the place. And especially if you're like if you're if you're dysregulated when you are you know, especially hungry or tired or stressed and, you know, all of those things together, um, that that can 
that can definitely have an impact. And I think it's a great question as well because it's it's not something that people talk too much about in terms of what's the interplay of like ADHD and sex. Um, you know, it can really affect um, whether you're in the moods for sex. You know, is this something that you, that you want when your partner's in that place? And it can change quickly as well. Like you can be there in that place um, uh, and sort of you know feeling amorous and it's all feeling really good one moment, and then quite soon after it, it can it can shift. Um, and then in terms of sort of, you know, if you are um, single, then that's, you know, that bit that we spoke about earlier, I guess, around sort of addiction and, and the dopamine side of things um, can mean that sex in itself can be very addictive. You know, the, mm. the, the, the pursuing of, you know, whether that's the pursuing of a relationship, um, people are who have ADHD can often be highly dopaminergic um, in, in forward thinking so that they're sense of dopamine is coming from a future event i would like to be with this person i'm going to do everything i can to, to win this person over and to, and to be with them and when that actually happens that interest just drops away altogether so mm. what you can often find is that people um you know they really want to be with somebody or feel like they want to be with somebody and then when the relationship properly begins that that interest just goes and the person that they've been you know there to use an old school term courting you know like they've been um you know sort of like uh, you know spending that time with suddenly they're just left wondering what what the hell's going on why is this person yeah. just lost interest in me and that's because that connection that that dopamine oh. urge to connect has, has disappeared is it yeah that's really helpful i mean i'm i'm so uh, there's so many questions i have surrounding that it's like <laughs> number one <laughs> would you kind of um it seems like not again, like not unlike addiction, it can kind of present almost similarly, uh, or even almost viewed as an attachment disorder. Like it, it, it the yeah, that the the attachment mechanism is broken. Can you speak to that at all, or is that like does that sound like it, it might be circling the point? <laughs> it, it, it might it might well be, and, and, and there's definitely elements to that that, 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 that resonate. That would be in the, the the bounds of therapy, so that would be in the in the clinical world over there. So I can't I can't really speak to that. So so much as to say that I guess that um, people who have ADHD can have very successful, happy, romantic relationships, um, and I know many of them that that, that, that are in that place and, and and do have that. But it can take some time as well to really understand and learn your, learn enough about yourself. To be in that place, um, it's not necessarily something that always comes super easy for for people um, that have ADHD. They might really like the idea of being in relationships or chasing sex. You know, this idea of physical contact really, really appealing. But bringing that all together into sort of a longer term relationship that that, that can be challenging for some people. Yeah, I definitely hear that. Um, and then also, I'm curious as to whether you see like if there's any information or anything that you've experienced, or I mean like studies that have been done on how ADHD expresses itself differently and apologies for the binary, but men and women. Uh, so, that, I mean, that's such a relevant question for right now because it's actually finally getting the attention that it deserves. In short, there's a much higher diagnosis rate of men than there is women. Uh, and that's often because uh, at school, 
the classic ADHD kid. Yeah, I'm thinking about that kid. (laughs) The demonic boy. (laughs) Right? You know, and... and, uh, Zooming. Exactly. You know, far far easier to see that. (laughs) And then that little boy gets the attention and gets a a diagnosis. But for for women, for girls, often you get the other subset. It's sort of three, three main types of ADHD hyperactive, which we just referred to as, as a little boy, um, and inattentive, which is less a physical manifestation of ADHD, a much more men- internal way you can't bring your attention to focus on that task. Um, and then there's combined type where you, you have the two together. But what you often find with girls and women is that they have, as, as, as I know in terms of the research that I've read, is that they often have the inattentive subtype, which, which means that they're, not, they're just not presenting with symptoms, you know. You know, maybe Mary should try harder at school. If only Susan like made more of an effort, she could do so well. She, you know, she's got so much ability, but it's seen as laziness. So again, this <clears throat> this negative reinforcement can begin at such an early age. They're seen seen as just being lazy or not trying hard enough, and all of these other things, which then goes with you going going forward. So so that that's really why the women are, women are massively massively underdiagnosed in comparison to men. Wow. Yeah. That, that's funny. I'm, I'm so curious because I do think that like I I can see where that would really lead, especially because, you know, tradi- traditionally with any kind of scientific research, it's always like the dudes who are who are studied first because all the scientists are men. Anyway, I hope that's changing. <laughs> and I, I, again, I'm sure there's, there's, a, there's a patriarchal element in that. For, for 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 certain, there's almost certainly a part of that. As, as always, well. always a patriarchy, Tristan. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and I was also wondering, um, like you know, it it can be said that obviously this comes with a lot of challenges, and we've named some of them. But like you also kind of refer to the, the superpowers of ADHD, and I'm curious as to kind of what those have been in your own life, and how how you've been able to harness them, and and what it's felt like. Very curious as to this last part, like what it's felt like to kind of have a, a different relationship with this neurodiversity than perhaps you did even 10 years ago. Sure. So with the coaching that I do, that's, I guess, my superpower in terms of um, being able to focus and be completely present in those sessions. I'm literally just there with the person. The attention is focused. The distraction drops sometimes awake absolutely completely and I'm just there with that person um able to think and respond with them in a way that they find helpful and you know hopefully continue to to do so um so that for me I guess is where my my superpower shows up um on a day-to-day basis the bit before that building my career uh was people so like I'd love that dopaminergic rush of connecting with new people fascinated by where they've come from and who they are and what they're doing and you know and obviously if you if you keep on showing up like that if you keep on turning up to music industry conferences around the world (laughs) asking people lots of questions and getting their details what what happens eventually is is that you end up knowing quite a big circle of people um uh, and that's been obviously sort of like fundamental in my building my career and being able to get to where where i am and i love helping people sort of you know to, to to do that themselves um but it really shows up for, for people in a whole in a whole variety of, of different ways the key part and for anyone listening to this is to is to understand how your own 
version, your own type of ADHD, shows up what those superpowers are, and then to scaffold, scaffold around that. So to create a life where you are leaning as much as you possibly can into your strengths and exposing yourself as little as you possibly can to things that will aggravate your ADHD symptoms. So in my case, that's administration. Uh, and <laughs> so cool that you were working with an association. <laughs> so, so, and you know that 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 that's, that was a an interesting um, example because it had working for the Association for Electronic Music, this wonderful global organisation where I got to meet and interact, engage with all of these people around topics like mental health, was absolutely fantastic, uh, and I'm forever grateful for having had that opportunity. But there was a lot of admin as well, you know, yeah. uh, and and in my new role now that I've really scaled that down by outsourcing things. And anyone that's got ADHD really wants to sort of try and augment their life as much as they possibly can do to lean into what they excel at uh, and then try and outsource those other bits as much as they can do that, that they're not so strong on. Awesome. And then specifically on the kind of creator side, like... I know that you mentioned, uh, like, for instance, hyperfocus being a, a one of the symptoms of ADHD, and I wonder, like, what what made you think that, like, or what not even what made you think because it seems to be quite factual, <laughs> but like, what do you believe um, makes so many kind of neurodivergent people? Wh- what makes it? Uh, let me rephrase. <laughs> what makes our industry so attractive to neurodivergent people? <laughs> Uh, the creativity, I think, you know, the, the fact that people who are neurodivergent, whether they have um, Tourette's or, you know, ADHD, dyslexia, um, are often nonlinear thinkers. So that they are approaching the world in a very different way to people that maybe think in a linear way. So my accountant, um, who helps me with my accounts, don't let me know numbers, <laughs> that would be a disaster, is clearly a very good linear thinker and I need I need that in my life but if you are a record label exec you want artists that are going to be coming up with amazing lyrics or songwriting and, and coming up with new ideas and those people are often neurodiverse they can't do their accounts for shit right they will not <laughs> they will not be able to get that stuff done often um, but they can go and, um, with the right structure, perform around the world and come up with amazing um, songs which people love. Neurodiverse people, and I said this in AD the other day, I, I feel very strongly that they're, they're the beating heart of the music industry, of the creative industries. Um, because this non-linear way of thinking, of having this cascade of ideas interact with each other in such a, a often random, strange and unusual way, can bring about these little epiphanies or these um, gems of uh, new thoughts, of new creative um, ideas that just didn't exist before and that you just don't get with, with, with linear thinking. So that is probably a very long-winded way of saying that's the reason I feel anyway, that there's so many neurodiverse people working in the music industry because they're just very good at so much of the creative work that, that, that goes with it so that, that they're naturally drawn to it. Awesome. That's a, I, I would concur. Um, and so if like, I know that you're also certified as a, as a transformational coach do you, and like, I'm curious as to your own, your business, like, are you working only with people in the music industry with ADHD or are you working with people in the music industry in transformation and like life coaching and people with ADHD who might not be in the music industry, or do you have a really specific kind of like sweet spot of what you want to be doing, who you want your clientele to be? 
so now I'm a music industry ADHD coach, just to keep it simple. Um, it's all in the title in terms of where my, my, my focus is, I guess. <laughs> cool. the, the, it's about bringing all of those different skills and experience together in that place. But I've been coaching now for the last two years. So I've, over that period, I've retrained and I've coached people from different sectors, from in investment banking through to, quite ironically, accounting um, and, and a whole range of different industries that sit outside of the music industry um, as part of that, that, that learning journey. So that's sort of, I guess, the fundamentals of coaching, if you like. You know, once, mm-hmm. once you can coach and work with people, you can really apply that to anyone in, in, in any sector. Um, but I'm specialising now in ADHD for people that work in the music industry simply because it's been so underserved uh, that, that hopefully now that there's a resource that people can go to for that. That's awesome. So if people do want to get in touch who are struggling with ADHD and in the music industry, what is the place, best place to find you on the World Wide Web? So um, my uh, web address is my name, tristanhunt.co.uk, T-R-I-S-T-A-N, hunt, H-U-N-T, .co.uk. Um, and I am on socials. I'm on Instagram, tristanhunt.uk, um, and also on LinkedIn, I think it's Tristan Hunt. Uh, so I'm on all of those different places and if people want to reach out and my contact details are, are on all of those different sites. Fantastic. And so thus we descend into the lightning round. Don't think too hard, (laughs) whatever, whatever kind of floats towards you, feel free to, uh, to say, um, what is your favorite way to downregulate if you're feeling anxious or stressed? Uh, exercise. So just, yeah, I will jump on my bike actually. After we've spoken today, I'll be on my bike, go to Regent's Park, and probably spend uh, an hour and a half um, cycling to, to get all that out. Awesome. What is your favorite wa- way to rally and motivate if you are feeling low or depressed? Uh, to do something that's inspirational and that I enjoy. Um, and this is a key part for people with ADHD is you have need to get the big stuff done, but often to kickstart the engine, it's really good to do something that, that is of interest and that's good for your brain. Uh, and that's a great way to, to then get some momentum going. Excellent. Um, what turns you on? And that can be either like erotically or creatively or intellectually or however you, however you take it. Uh, I really like people who connect with their eyes. So where you look at somebody and you feel like you're connected with the person, the I, if we want to go into spiritual terms, behind the I, the I behind the I. <laughs> Very poetic. <laughs> uh, uh, and, and, you know, if, 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 the physical, if the physical attraction is combined with that and you've got somebody with, with, um, who's done their own self-work, right they've done their own journey they've, they've done the self-work themselves there's that intellectual component to it and there's the physical attraction i find i find that very seductive understandably yes <laughs> that's like fireworks you're like we're not only making eye contact because i feel like they're crazy <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> i like the, the disclaimer of self-work <laughs> um what is your favorite snack uh my favorite snack i don't snack um i don't so i don't i, I don't um not, right, favorite meal uh yeah uh my favorite my favorite meal uh i tend to eat a large amount of like uh pasta and uh like vegetable bolognese it's like my, my sort of staple that i have when i've come back from s- cycling um 
but I had when I was over in um, in, in Amsterdam last week, um, we went out for a civilized meal, just myself and, and a few other people, just to escape escape the intensity of it, and found a really lovely little Italian restaurant, and I had these lovely um, they were like uh, ravioli stuffed with truffle, um, with a, with a, a butter sauce that, that, that definitely rates up there. That sounds fantastic, and also like a much needed like human interaction outside of what is it, loopy thumping, <laughs> the endless loopy thumping. <laughs> um, what current or recent series are you enjoying? If if and if you don't watch series, movie or book? Um, so I'm uh, reading a, a book um, about a war correspondent called Marie Colvin. Um, which I highly recommend. It's written by um, Lindsay Hilson, who's a Channel 4 um, uh, war correspondent, um, about this incredible life that this woman had, um, so bravely going to some of the toughest war zones in the world, befriending people like Yasser Arafat and being able to be on the inside of world events as they were happening. Um, But she did it in such a brave way that, that, that... she would never be able to report the news without having taken the risks that she did. And and she actually lost an eye um, in one explosion and, and, and she was killed ultimately um, in, in a bomb blast um, when she, she was in a war zone. Um, I find those sort of personal first-hand accounts of human development um, in, incredibly um, in, inspiring. Um, and, and another book that I'm reading at the moment is by, by Ryan Holiday, and it's all it's all about um, a sort of focus and attention. Ryan Holiday's a is this the discipline. Discipline is destiny. Is that one? Is that it's, it? That's exactly the book. That's exactly <laughs> the book. So, and that and that and that's wonderful because it, it has loads of inspirational stories about amazing people and the things they've done, um, but with a whole range of, you know underline inducing sentences and, and uh, quotes that you can take and actually use in your own life to, 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 to improve your own living. That's awesome. Uh, and finally, uh, what do you love? Uh, I love being in the industry that I'm in. I feel incredibly grateful to be working in the music industry after 20 years of being in this space. It, it never gets old and coming back from something like the Amsterdam dance event that's had a break for two years where we got to, you know, we, we, we were reconnecting either side of that at Paris and seeing all of these other, um, Paris Electronic Week, seeing all of these other people that I haven't seen for so long in this amazing community um, in one place um, has been amazing um, because you realize, wow, this is where I work, right? This is sick. This, this is <laughs> like all my friends are here. <laughs> all my all my friends all my friends are here. So I get to work with people who the vast majority of them with I would love to go out for dinner or hang out with anyway. The fact we get to do business and work together that feels like a huge privilege. So I, I'm incredibly grateful for for where I get to work. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Tristan, for your time today. It's really really nice to get to know you better, and uh, I. Really appreciate your honesty, and I'm so excited for this next like chapter of your journey. You're welcome, Louisa, and thank you so much for having me on the show. It's always great to, to speak with you and, and, to, and to connect here. It's been a Sexuality, gender identity, recovery, recovery.
recovery, recovery, got a spiritual growth.